Hello, and welcome to this Joint Journal Club, co-hosted by the ACS Assembly of Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology and the Behavioral Science and Health Services Research Assembly. I'm Rob Stansbury, member of the SRN Assembly's Web Committee and co-chair for the SRN Journal Club. I'd like to welcome my co-moderator from the BSHSR Assembly, Dr. Michelle Eakin. Hello, good afternoon. Today we'll be discussing a very informative paper published in the Annals of the American Thoracic Society entitled Control of Confounding and Reporting of Results in Causal Inference Studies, Guidance for Authors from Editors of Respiratory Sleep and Critical Care Journals. We would like to welcome lead author Dr. David Letterer, who is Associate Professor at Columbia University and Editor-in-Chief of Annals ATS. Thanks for having me. We're also fortunate to have our expert panelists today to provide commentary and insight on the importance of this paper in their respective field. First, I would like to introduce Dr. Susan Redline, who is the Peter C. Farrell Professor of Sleep Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Redline's research focuses primarily on epidemiological studies designed to elucidate the etiologies of sleep disorders and clinical trials aimed at understanding health outcomes in sleep disorders. Dr. Redline, welcome. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be here. I'm pleased to welcome my colleague, Dr. Allison Turnbull, who is an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine with a joint appointment in the Department of Epidemiology at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Turnbull has a PhD in epidemiology, and her research focuses on clinical trials and interventions to improve end-of-life care and understanding patient outcomes following critical illness. Dr. Turnbull, welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Letter, to begin, um, could you give us some background on the development of this paper and what led the journal editors to pursue this publication? I believe I heard on a previous interview that this paper took three months from the initial meeting to publication, which makes me think that journal editors across these various journals tended to see, see the same types of errors with uh, causal inference studies. It was, it was a little longer than three months. Uh, I think it was close to six months. but. Uh, it, it was something that really launched quickly because of so much interest uh, with so many people. Uh, it started at what we call the Respiratory Journals Editors Meeting in May of 2018 uh, at the American Thoracic Society International Conference, uh, where uh, quite a few of the editor-in-chiefs and deputy editors from different respiratory journals from around the world uh, meet. We also meet at the European Respiratory Society meeting. And uh, I had um, pushed for an agenda item to talk about methods, uh, particularly methods in observational studies in humans. And I presented the, kind of a, a broad outline of what's in this paper. And there was some enthusiasm around the room for a need for guidance to authors on this. And so I proposed that we follow up with a conference call and so on. And so pretty quickly, we drafted some key principles. In the paper, there are three key principles. We had started with five, uh, which seemed a little maybe too much. Uh, and we then very quickly invited critical care editors and sleep journal editors. And again, we, we really had an impressive uh, amount of interest. Uh, I think in the end, we had 35 journals represented uh, supporting this document. So uh, we, there was a writing group. We drafted it. It went through many iterations, as you would expect. Uh, all authors gave really fantastic input. And we ended up with this document that I think we submitted maybe around October, I'm guessing, maybe September of 2018. 
So it was, it, it did happen really quickly, and uh, uh, again, a lot of enthusiasm around, in fact, in this case, around the world uh, from all these editors. Great. Dr. Redline, I ask you, um, what do you see as the implications and what might be important considerations for researchers undertaking these ca causal inference studies in sleep medicine? Yeah, it's, it's actually, um, sleep medicine I think actually is really uh, very ripe to think about causal inference. And in fact, um, sleep often has very complex interrelationships with, with the exposures of interest and the outcomes. And often sleep um, uh, co-varies with many other factors. So I think that um, you know, often when we try to, for example, understand what might be the contributing influence, say, of sleep apnea, say, to the development, say, for example, of hypertension, um, for many, many years there's been a lot of, um, you know, confusion and controversy of what we really mean by our exposure and outcome and what factors are mediators versus confounders versus, um, as, as the article said, could even be colliders. So I think that um, in the past, I think many of our models may have actually been in some ways over-adjusted for, meaning including likely mediators, and others actually may have um, resulted in um, biased inferences by adjusting for colliders. So for example, um, you know, I think before this paper, I think clearly, um, you know, explicated the causal diagrams that one really needs to think about. I think many people in my field had very knee-jerk reflexes about all the things that should be included in a fully adjusted model, so to speak. And I think this particular article really gives pause to think about what really are the factors that should be included in a model to, to really allow you to make inferences about causality that don't actually, um, you know, introduce biases. Um, so, you know, again, you know, the things that come up are, you know, if you look at the relationship, for example, um, between sleep apnea and heart disease, you know, it raises the question that, you know, adjusting for hypertension and diabetes may be factors in the mediating pathway, where at, on the other hand, adjusting for um, sleepiness, in fact, may, if, if sleepiness is a, a sort of an outcome of diabetes for, you know, the various comorbidities, that actually could be a collider. So I think it gives us a framework for really thinking of those, you know, what really um, we need to think about as mediators and colliders versus true confounders. And then, Dr. Turnbull, I'm going to ask you a similar question. What do you see as the implications and what might be important consideration um, when conducting this type of research in critical care? Yeah, so I think um, what I hope that this article does is move a lot more thought about uh, observational research to, uh, to the design phase and away from the analysis phase. Uh, because what I see this paper is doing is saying that we, it's, it's essential to um, think about what your hypothesis is and what role you believe different exposures play uh, in, in the causal model so that you have the right data. Um, and because patients in, in the critical care setting are kind of in the hospital already, there, it is very tempting to just say, well, you know, a lot of it's going to be in the medical record, and then you have this 
playground of data that you've pulled out of the record and, and which, which things should we use. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's kind of a recipe for trouble. Uh, really thinking about what you believe is going on, what may affect various causal pathways, and what data you need should happen before data collection. And, you know, I would even argue that, that as you do that, as you draw your DAG, as you think about what hypothesis it is you're testing, you should ideally put your chips down uh, and register your observational study with clinicaltrials.gov the same way you would a trial, uh, so that you have, you, have, you have really committed to what it is you're testing, and, and you can point to that and say, you know, we stuck to it, and, and this was not, the final model was not chosen based on having a, a quote-unquote significant-looking paper. I recommend that strongly. It, it falls in line with the idea of emulating clinical trials, and, and my hope is that it has, a, it has as big an effect on readers who um, kind of have more interest in and faith in the design of these studies rather than, as I fear often happens, people assume that uh, there was essentially a fishing trip through a lot of available clinical data in the hopes of finding something with a P less than 0.05 association. Great advice. Thank you. Very well stated. And I think they even mentioned in the paper um, there was a sentence uh, saying observational studies should be the clinical trial you wanted to design. And that's, you know, a little bit different way of thinking of it, but I think, I think it's, you know, very profoundly helpful when we're um, thinking about these studies. And, and it's something that, you know, uh, a lot of kind of causal inference experts, I mean, Miguel Hernan has been lecturing on that for many years. Um, and, they, you know, when you talk to people who feel strongly about this, you know, kind of one of the rules you hear is randomize when you can, and when it's unethical or impossible, then think through what data you would want and try to do it with an observational study. To follow up on that, Dr. Letter, um, how do I decide which variables to put in a regression model, or even if I'm looking at an article, you know, trying to assess whether an author built their regression models correctly, points you could give on, um, you know, really what's important to consider um, when looking at these models? Yeah, I, I could talk about it all day, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so let me let me start with the framework. Um, the the first uh, the first thing is what what question is one asking when approaching research? And in the paper, uh, we try to distinguish causal inference studies from a different approach, which would be prediction modeling. Not that these are the only two ideas or two ways to do a study, but when using regression techniques in uh, observational studies in humans. These are two very different ways to approach a study, and I just want to give one moment to a prediction model and then shuffle it off to the side because nothing in the paper has anything to do with the prediction model, but I want to make this distinction clear in everyone's mind. So in a prediction model, we're trying to predict an event or the value of some variable using the data at hand, and, and we're all familiar with a lot of prediction models. Uh, for example, all the prediction models we use for spirometry and lung volumes or Apache uh, scores in the ICU, and, and there's you know, sleep prediction questionnaires that are used. So this is a, those are a very different type of thing, and I'm not going to refer to that again. I just want everyone to 
in their mind, all the listeners, please just think about that as something completely different that needs to be addressed in a different way. Now, coming back to causal inference, in causal inference, we're trying to identify whether or not a, an exposure of interest may be a cause of the outcome of interest. So we start with a hypothesis about A as a cause of B, and of course we operationalize that typically not using the word cause, but using the word association. But in, in our mind, um, as Dr. Turnbull said, we have a causal model in mind upon which that hypothesis rests. Uh, and so it's that causal model of interest that should inform the variables that enter into our regression model, or at very least, that we want to control for or condition on in different ways, right? It doesn't always have to be a regression model. So how, how do we choose them? In the paper, we illustrate five different ways that, at least as an editor, that I've seen in papers across my desk. And in the paper, we argue that two of them are reasonable and that three of them should not be used really at all. And, and this may be a little bit controversial. Uh, this is where we're pushing our, uh, you know, our community, so the, you know, the ATS uh, community of researchers to step up methods uh, in, in, in this way. And I'll just mention the two ways where, that we encourage or that we think are reasonable. So the first one is what many people already do, which is to identify variables that they think function as a confounder. And using that definition, that would be a variable that is associated with the exposure or probably a cause of the exposure as well as a cause of the outcome. And in the paper, we use an example um, in, in the figure that smoking confounds an association between exercise and lung cancer. The hypothesis was that exercise could prevent lung cancer, and smoking we know is associated with exercise, and, uh, well, we, maybe not through a direct pathway, but it is, and smoking is associated with lung cancer, and so that may function as a confounder, and we might want to control for that. And so one might select various confounders and then condition or control for them in, in a regression model uh, based on that kind of idea of looking at each individual variable. That's the first approach. The second approach, which we strongly encourage people to begin considering and learning uh, and, and using, is um, more uh, kind of up-to-date causal inference methods uh, that revolve around what's called a directed acyclic graph, or DAG, or DAG. We illustrate some of these DAGs in the paper uh, in a very simplistic way, but DAGs can be very complex. These are pictorial ways or visual ways of depicting causal relationships between many factors. So not just the causal relationship we're interested between the exposure and the outcome, but all of the antecedent causes of all of those variables and how they're intertwined. So that sounds pretty complex, um, and it is, and it gets a little bit tricky because we're not always aware of causal relationships. But there, and there is a whole science behind that, or at least a whole lot of education that we all need in order to become expert at that. And then after constructing that kind of causal graph, there are specific rules that can be followed. They're called D-separation, D as in David, D-separation rules to identify which of those variables in that directed acyclic graph should be conditioned upon, or maybe a different way to say that would be 
which should be selected as variables for a regression model. So I know that, that may sound not perfectly clear because there's really so much wrapped up in, in what I just said, but I do want to switch for one moment and explain three ways that people should not be selecting variables for their model in causal inference studies. One is any automated variable selection method that's built into your statistical software, like forward, backward, stepwise, that should not be used for causal inference studies. Your, your statistical software does not understand the causal structure underlying your hypothesis, nor should you be using p-values or AIC or DIC or, or other measures of, say, model fit to select variables to put in your model. That's out. Nor should we use changes in data coefficients when we add variables to models. Um, and finally, we, we should not be putting things in to see which variables win, so to speak, meaning which variables are the independent predictors. That is also out. Uh, that, that has to go away completely because it, it does not make any sense from a causal perspective. So it's a long answer to your question, but um, I think I answered it. Can I jump in here helpful. and say that, that I wanted – I'm sure there are people listening who are feeling really betrayed right now by their introductory statistics class, and you, that is not your fault. A lot of introductions to generalized linear regression models are focused on a prediction framework, uh, and, and so these are kind of easy – these are techniques that are often introduced in that setting, and, and I understand why people fall back on them. So, um, you know, nobody should be feeling terrible about themselves as they hear this. Hopefully people perceive it as um, a, a stepping stone to doing, you know, even higher quality work than we're already doing. Yeah. But to follow up on that with you, uh, Dr. Turnbull, you know, you mentioned DAG in your response and in, based on Dr. Letterer's comments. How would you like to see this in, like, an archetypal paper? Like, would a DAG be represented? Would it be presented as a figure? And, um, you know, as a uh, – in sitting on the editorial board for Adults of Atheists, how would you like to see reviewers kind of look for these in papers as they're put together? I, I think a, a DAG as a figure is great. Uh, because it summarizes a lot of complicated interactions in a way that's actually pretty hard to, to, to write in words. I mean, I, trying to describe a DAG, you'd eat up a whole lot of your words for your manuscript. So I do think a figure is appropriate. Of course, you know, the downside of, of including your DAG as, as your figure one is that um, we don't know how many DAGs you drew uh, or at what point did you draw after you collected your data and ran some exploratory analyses. Which is why I do, why I kind of advocate for, um, you know, making these assertions and and registering a, an observational study prior to analysis. To Redline, I'd like to follow up with you on on that. Um, as you mentioned, um, the multiple directionalities in sleep medicine and looking at these, you know, different confounders and mediators. It seems like we would almost be prone to misspecification sometimes and just give anything that's surrounding some of these studies, constructing a DAG um, in sleep medicine would be very challenging. Yeah, that's, uh, I appreciate your point very much and actually I, I worry about, you know, the inherent limitations of our knowledge and I think Dr. Lepra nicely introduced the session um, by, um, you know, acknowledging that the DAGs do require certain level of assumptions and information. So,
So my own um, approach is because often there are big gaps in the, you know, in that knowledge base that we have, is I like to start with maybe the um, causal framework that I'm most comfortable with or confident in. And then I often, and I don't know how my peers on the call feel about this, I often might then actually present an alternative um, DAG um, as a sensitivity analysis. And that does come in often where, in fact, as I said before, say, um, you know, there's been an argument, they say sleep apnea is associated with cardiovascular and the big question is, should you, for example, adjust for hypertension? Well, if hypertension is part of the potential causal pathway, um, you know, you're really um, adjusting, you know, for one of, you know, one of the direct and mediating factors. So times, and on the other hand, it may be that m much of what I'm interested in has nothing to do with, with the vascular, you know, effect of blood pressure. A blood pressure and heart disease. So I actually often will acknowledge the limitations of my knowledge, present as my primary analysis, my best attempt at um, framing a dad, but then perhaps, uh, you know, also very explicitly and transparently maybe showing some sensitivity analyses. Again, I don't know how my colleagues feel about that. I've never discussed that with you. Dr. Letter, Dr. Turnbull, what do you, what do you, comments towards Dr. Redline's approach of using a, a sensitivity and, and furthermore, like, how should we go about figuring out independent predictors if we're not to use kind of the uh, traditional methods described? Uh, Allison, you want to go first? Um, well, I'll, I'll talk to a, a couple things in there. Um, I, first, I would say that, that sensitivity analyses are really important uh, and that very often we hypothesize that there is some confounder that we are unable to collect data on, or it's a, it's a hypothesized confounder like socioeconomic status that is a latent variable and really hard to measure properly or completely. And that's, that's always going to be an issue. Residual confounding will always be an issue. Um, and I, I think kind of the best, one of the best ways to handle that is to just acknowledge, first of all, that uh, there no single study uh, can, can say everything and, and should Certainly no single observational study uh, is going to eliminate uncertainty. And then second of all, to think about something like an E-value that is a, a way to say how strong a relationship would an unmeasured confounder have to have with my exposure and outcome to negate my finding, to result in, a, in, a, in a, um, an estimate of no effect. And often it's really illustrative to say, you know, to do that calculation and realize, wow, something would have to be three times more common in my exposure group in order to eliminate this association. Um, and that can put a lot of people's minds at ease, that even though there is inevitably some uh, unmeasured confounding, it probably is not enough to, um, to reverse the association you're seeing in your, in your primary hypothesis. The second thing I would say is that this idea of identifying independent predictors is, is tricky, and, and certainly there have always been parts of uh, epidemiology, kind of risk factor epidemiology, that, that have utilized statistical tools in an attempt to identify important predictors of an outcome without a causal framework. So the idea here is essentially hypothesis generation. What might be causing this outcome? Um, and 
you know, that is a separate field. If there's, there's prediction, there's causal inference, and then there's this kind of hypothesis generation risk factor field. And I actually am really excited about that, that, third, that third field because it, it's a place where a lot of the kind of new sophisticated ensemble machine learning techniques I think have a place. Um, things like bagging and boosting and random forests make sense there because they allow you to uh, look at many, many, many predictors, even more predictors than you have people in your study, um, and start to see using things like uh, variable importance and mean and minimal depth what might be a cause. You know, it, those kind of studies are purely hypothesis generating. You then need to take those results and design a causal inference study or design a trial to test the hypothesis that comes out of them. But I think thinking of those things separately um, is important. And too often we, we, go into thing, we go into a study essentially trying to do all the things at once to identify the risk factors and then confirm them using the same data set and the same linear regression model, and you just can't do that. I 100% I endorse everything uh, that you just said. Thank you. One thing I would like to follow up on, and could you expand a little bit on the table two fallacy, and perhaps just the importance of um, considering this fallacy? Uh, sure, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, table two fallacy is an idea that I think a lot of people in our field may not be perfectly familiar with. It's not a term in common usage. Uh, and there's not a tremendous amount published about it either. But it, it, it applies to a lot of work that I see published in pulmonary critical care and sleep. And this is the idea that even in a causal inference study where we're testing a single hypothesis, that then when we show our results, that we show not only the result or the model output or coefficient or transform coefficient or whatever it might be for our hypothesis of interest and our exposure of interest, but that we also show all of the coefficients from all of the other variables in the model, and then make claims about the associations that are observed there, unfortunately often based on the magnitude of a p-value. And the problem is that in the uh, hypothesized exposure, we've thought through the causal framework, we're looking at this specific direct effect, and that result is what we're really interested in. All of these other things conflate indirect and direct effects, may or may not have the right other variables in the model that we would have selected if we had constructed a DAG for that association. For example, I might show you the result for the association between smoking and sleep apnea. Um, and then I'm going to adjust perhaps for age and sex and other factors. And I'll present the effect estimate for age that's not my hypothesis. I have no hypothesis about that. In addition, as I said, that association may not have all the right variables in the model, um, and we can have residual confounding. And again, sorry to repeat myself, but conflation of indirect and direct effects. So I think we need to move away from showing the results from all of the variables in the model in causal inference studies. That, that's what Table 2 fallacy is. That's great. I think. As you're talking about this, you know, that keeps coming up is kind of this over-reliance on p-values um, that sometimes researchers can get into, particularly ones that were not even on their hypothesized view, but they see that p-value and they want to go and reinterpret it. So how do we handle the p-value controversy and, and kind of how do we pay less attention to p-values to interpret the results of the study? And I'm going to 
open it up to uh, Dr. Lederer first, and then we'd like Dr. Redline and Turnbull to comment afterwards um, on how they see this moving forward in the future. Sure, I'm, ha I'm happy to talk about this. It is a huge topic, and I think a lot, a lot of people in the field have seen these papers come out um, from different groups of statisticians making different arguments about what we should be doing about p-values, how we should be thinking about p-values and reporting and interpreting p-values. So I'll try to like very briefly uh, give an overview of the problem. I'm not going to do it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably get a few things wrong and, and leave out important details. But I think there, there's a few different ideas here. One is the idea that the p-value of 0.05 or an alpha of 0.05 is not stringent enough um, and that it should be smaller. It should be 0.005, which is what's mostly most first was uh, proposed or maybe 0.01 or so, something a little bit more stringent. And then there's uh, maybe on the other, and there's a lot of gray in between, but the other extreme is, well, let's just get rid of p-values altogether um, and not pay attention to them. And I, I, I'm not sure either of those are good approach or the right approach all the time. And in my work and in, in, in papers that come across my desk as editor, what I'm really looking for is people to stop relying entirely on the p-value to interpret their results. I think that unfortunately, uh, at least among physicians, uh, the very little bit of training that physicians get in, in uh, statistics and, and clinical epidemiology really focuses a lot on alpha 0.05 and making a decision about whether or not the association observed is meaningful um, based on a p-value above or below that litmus test. I call it an alpha litmus test. Um, and so there can be very interesting and important results where the p-value is 0.07 or 0.2 or some other value. I think we have to be very careful about focusing instead of on the p-values on our actual results. What's the prevalence of the outcome in the exposed and unexposed? What's the difference in the prevalence or the prevalence ratio? How big is that? And what, how, how precise is that estimate? Have we excluded all meaningful sizes of that, of that, that estimate um, within our confidence interval or credible interval? So I just want people to move away from that p-value and focus more on the actual results when, when interpreting the results. Great. Dr. Redline? Yeah, I think Dr. Lederer beautifully um, gave an overview, but you know, I do have to you know sort of reflect that this that this issue of p-values versus say confidence intervals and the, the emphasis on p-values have been debated now um, in the epidemiology literature for probably 15, if not longer, years, and um, I think it's still a point of, of a lot of discomfort. And um, in fact, I think what's also happened is that um, many of us also do genetic epidemiologic work where in fact just the opposite approach because of the thousands if not millions of comparisons that are being made. And, um, and in that case, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, results section and all the graphs are all p-values. We have this very interesting kind of tension between, I think, more of our traditional cohort studies where we're um, not having, you know, we have a, we do not have, um, 
obviously too many um, multiple comparisons burden, and we're really thinking about uh, clinically or biologically significant effects, and we want to interpret, as David said, the effect estimator and the variance behind it, um, around it. Um, also, in the context of the type of data we collected, the sample size, the p-value is going to be, you know, somewhat proportional to the sample size as well. So I think we have that type of, um, you know, motivation. And then I think many of us are also aware that, um, you know, we can come to false um you know, we could falsely reject the null hypothesis, especially in cases where there are multiple comparisons. So that's, that, I think, is the tension. And again, what I'd like to also um, really just emphasize again is really the need for transparency um, in terms of how you describe your results. I fully believe in, you know, and in interpreting, again, the sample size, the hypothesis, um, the, um, you know, the, the effect estimate, how many comparisons you're making, and realize that, um, as, as was said many years ago, you know, it's, it's probably to hang everything on any discrete p-value probably isn't what is going to really impact the likelihood that you have a f finding that's important. Great. Dr. Temple? Um, I guess all I'd really add is that I, I certainly appreciate the example language provided in the, in the paper around uh, words like the estimate is imprecise rather than kind of having these battles over significant versus non-significant. Uh, I, I, a lot of my frustration has less to do with the actual statistics and behind a p-value and more with the fact that I know human behavior and and my busy readers are just going to be so tempted to just look at that um, because they are busy clinicians and it's just, it's, it's like hard to resist candy. Like I can just get all the information I need if I look there. Um, and I, I unfortunately am difficult enough that I want my readers to think longer and harder than that. Another question for the group is, what do you see as the biggest barriers to implementation of what's discussed in this paper and maybe how we could overcome them? Uh, I, guess, I guess I could maybe address that a little bit. I, it's, yeah, this is a really important thing, and I, I think it has to come from multiple directions. Uh, on the editor side, you know, we're, we as editors are making a statement that this is what we want to see, um, but, you know, that, that's only a part, of, a part of it. You know, my, my hope is that uh, as uh, people who are doing clinical research, at least I'm talking about, uh, it's not just physicians, of course, but I think it's, it's people who don't have strong epidemiology backgrounds who, for example, don't have a PhD in epidemiology. You know, I think folks really who want to do high-quality research, who want to publish in our journals, uh, really need to step this up. And it might mean that people need to get some additional training. Um, some of this is not hard to learn. Some of this can be self-taught. Uh, maybe ATS should work on a, a module of of uh, how, to, how to learn not not necessarily everything, but the, the key elements, uh, and, and disseminate that to, to fellows and other other folks. But uh, this can be done. I mean, I, as an editor, I've I've uh, fed back specific feedback to to authors, and I've had them come back, and and the work is improved. Now, of course, I wish that was what they had set out from the beginning, and it was their a priori approach. Um, but I, I think it's better to do it right 
uh, and then do it wrong, even if it's after the fact. I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in, in everyone's ideas about about how we might improve this and implement it in a, in a broader way. I have two things I'd like to add here. Uh, not surprisingly, as the epi in the room, I would like people to hire epidemiologists the way they hire statisticians. We're the prep work, and statisticians tend to do the analysis, but um, you know, we are trained to, to sit and plan out a study and figure out what data you're going to need in order to get the least biased estimate possible. So, of course, I am going to advocate for more people like myself on the team from the get-go. Um, the other thing I would say is that I really appreciate the APS journals putting these, these standards on their website. Um, and I think I'm a little worried, though, that um, because I haven't seen other journals, despite the fact that they were part of the writing of this paper and have endorsed it, it I'm not always seeing it translate onto their guidelines on their websites. And so I worry a little. I've, I've heard authors say, well, if I do it the way Annals wants, I won't be able to just submit it to another critical care journal that will want something different. That becomes a barrier. You know, if I, if I, it's kind of like reformatting a paper, except people now think they have to reformat their statistics. So I, I just wish more journals were being as vocal as the ATS journals are about these standards. Hi, um, this is Susan, and I would like to maybe echo and, and maybe extend a few of the comments. And I think the notion, again, of trying to encourage people to come up front with the appropriate design and analytic plan, and whether that means consulting with both a biostatistician and an epidemiologist, I think prevents a lot of the problems um, downstream. I think it is very, very hard to go back to uh, um, an author and um, basically say we, we do everything in part because, um, you know, it, you know kind of the, the results have already been unblinded in a sense, and it already, at that point will lack the, you know, our prior, the, the rigor that an a priori prospectively designed um, analysis would have had. So, so clearly, you know, designing things in the beginning. Um, I also am somewhat optimistic that as there are more and more papers that actually follow um, guidance um, in this article, that these will be held up as models for future papers. Um, I think it's really common for people who are starting to do their scientific writing to open a journal and begin modeling their own writing on what was recently published. So I do think that there's this opportunity to, to really influence by just modeling uh, the tables and modeling the analytic approaches, and that itself, I think, will be influential. Um, I do think that there are going to be, you know, I think having greater uh, consensus amongst the journals and amongst reviewers, and I think one of the, the, the key issues, of, of course, I think there, you know, there's, um, I think this is where the role of editors may come in play. I think there's still probably lots of heterogeneity among the hundreds, if not thousands, of reviewers out there in their own attitude toward causal modeling and colliders and um, and p-values. But if the editors actually are actively work to ensure that their reviewers are given appropriate feedback and not just accept potentially the criticism of a reviewer who he, um, her, or himself may not be familiar with these latest recommendations. I think that will also help. 
Well, I think these are all great suggestions and very helpful in terms of uh, for researchers as they begin to write papers and to um, design, not just write papers, but as we talked about, design their studies and design from the beginning. Uh, really taking into consideration these guidelines would be very helpful as well as ways to kind of help implement them broader. <laughs> Michelle and I want to thank everyone for speaking with us today. Um, we really appreciate your time and expertise. We're hopeful that as researchers become more familiar with these guidelines, there will be a higher quality uh, and more reporting of observational studies that will further our mission of improving the lives of people with respiratory disease, sleep disorders, and critical illness. And again, thank you all.